Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would, by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to know, hearts to embrace, and hands and feet to work out your truth. Father, may your word before us that we will consider, may it strengthen us with patience to wait and endurance to not quit as we run the race that is set before us. And Father, while we are running, may we rest in the confidence that the good work you have begun in us will be carried on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you haven't already done so, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm 18. We're in the middle of our summer psalm series, seeing all of life as worship through the psalms. And here we consider, again, one of the 150 songs, prayers that God's people have offered to God. And these prayers, these psalms are, are familiar, as we've been saying. Who doesn't know Psalm 23? Who doesn't know Psalm 100? But they're unfamiliar with the context of being a long time ago in a place far away. These are all diverse, all 150, that they're unified as well because they're centered on the one true and living God. They help us understand and express the divine human encounter. As poetry, the Psalms force us to slow down and think, to contemplate, to meditate. And when we read the Psalms with faith, as when we read any of God's Word, we, by God's kindness, are transformed and not just informed. We've been saying that the church needs inclusive psalmody. What poverty churches have by not including the Psalms in worship? It helps remind us that God's people in the past, God's people in the present, until the Lord comes, God's people uh, in the future all can unite around the Psalms. They are given for us. The Psalms promote not just corporate worship on the Lord's day, but also all of life worship the rest of the week. But it's so important on the Lord's day, the beginning of this week, to be reoriented and realigned and the Psalms help us because I for one need to be reoriented right now. I for one need to be realigned right now. Our thoughts need to be realigned to the truth of God's word. Our affections need to be realigned to the truth of God's word, to be reoriented, to be taken off as it were the horizontal and focused on the vertical. Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible where you could find everything the Scriptures declare and teach in the Psalms. John Calvin, another great reformer, referred to the Psalms as an anatomy of all of the parts of the soul. And as we've been saying, the Psalms serve to open us up, to help us see what's inside, but they also help to close us back up and comfort us with the love of God that we ultimately see in Christ. Psalm 18 can be referred to as a thanksgiving psalm, also a kingship song as King David composes this. And as you see 
toward the end this, this theme of kingship. It was written to recount the Lord's faithfulness and to give praise to Him for His salvation. For those of you that went ahead and read um, Psalm, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 22, it's almost word for word. There it's in a historical narrative that breaks out into David's song of thanks as he looks back toward the end of his life on God's faithfulness to save him over and over and over again. And as the title to the psalm speaks of his enemy Saul, the first king of Israel, but also all of his enemies. David experienced long periods of great distress and many moments of intense trouble. This psalm doesn't just focus on David. It points away from David to David's greater son, Jesus. And the New Testament writers, both the writer to the letter to the Hebrews and in um, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, refers back to this psalm as seeing it fulfilled in Jesus. Now this is a long psalm. The fourth longest, by far the, the longest we've uh, gotten to this far. It is long, but its structure, I believe, is clear. It's coherent. There are 50 verses. I believe an introduction can be seen in the first three verses, a conclusion in the last five verses, and in the middle, 42 verses composing the body. Now, this is a great psalm to read. It's a great psalm to sing because in it, I believe we will see first, a great God to love. And second, a great rescue to recall. And thirdly, a great gospel to proclaim. So let's look now at the first three verses in particular. A great God to love. Even though this was read earlier, let me read again these first three verses. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now before we get to a great God to love, let's first consider a great love for God. Verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Most of you are familiar with love songs. I mean, think the 1950s, the 1960s, uh, 1970s, 80s, even today. Love songs. What do love songs say over and over and over again in one way or another? Every song, it might even have it in the title, right? I love you. I love you. An old song I love by the, uh, who is it? By um, uh, the Platters. I love you 1,000 times. Okay. It was about a guy who got in trouble in school and the teacher made him, so to speak, write a note a thousand times. And it was, of course, I love you 1,000 times. And isn't that the essence of love letters? But do you know that this is the only time, the only time in the entire Old Testament where it is recorded that someone says directly to God, I love you. It's the only recorded time of someone saying in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, I love you. Now, isn't that interesting? Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. Of course, 
when Jesus is asked in the New Testament, Matthew, what's the great commandment? What in Mark is the most important commandment? In Luke, when he's asked by the man, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response is always to go back, right? To Deuteronomy 6, 5, to love the Lord. He adds on to it, of course, to love your neighbor. Jesus is asked which one, and he answers with two and combines them in one. So you would think this happens over and over and over again, but no, only here. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Well, not only that, it's a unique word for love used only in this particular form here in Psalm 18.1. And it conveys an impulsive and emotional love, affection, passion. There is some difficulty sometimes translating from the Hebrew into any other language because one Hebrew word can really only be faithfully translated with a bunch of other words. There was something packed into that one Hebrew word. Here, it's affection, it's passion. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Now, consider David's relationship with God. It's not defined preeminently as service, although David serves the Lord. Not submission, although David submits himself to the Lord. It's not even obedience, although David obeys the Lord. It is love, a strong, passionate, vehement love. Let me stop and ask us this question. We know obedience is absolutely essential to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, right? We know that. We understand that the third purpose of the law is to guide the Christian in a life that's pleasing to God. Absolutely. But ask yourself this question. Does somebody... Ask yourself this question. Would people say about me that I love the Lord? Would they say that? Would they say, oh, I obey the Lord, I I serve the Lord? But would they say... You know what? He loves the Lord. She loves the Lord. Now, of course, that love is manifested in action that you can see. But here, interestingly, David, King David, warrior David, is unashamed to say this. I love you, Lord. Remember when Jesus was at the home of Simon the Pharisee, and an unnamed woman came in and washed Jesus' feet. You remember that? Simon was getting a little bit uh, bothered by that and others, and so Jesus said, Simon, I want to tell you something, and, and teacher, tell me. And, and what does Jesus do as we see in Luke 7? You remember that? Forgiven much, loves much, forgiven little, Loves little. Remember the relationship? She knew she was a great sinner. She was forgiven greatly. She loved the one who forgave her. I think there's a parallel here. David, as we will see, is going to experience great rescue, great deliverance, great salvation. So he can declare great love. And interestingly, as we heard from the New Testament reading, 
the only place in the New Testament that the triune God, in particular God the Son, is directly addressed with, I love you, is Peter. David, Old Testament, great sin, great forgiveness, great salvation. Peter, arrogant, boastful, denies the Lord, forgiven, restored, great love. You know why a lot of us don't love God? Probably because we don't consider our great sin, our great rescue, our great deliverance. So it's a great love, but it's a great personal God to David. God, David is loving not just God in general, but he's, he's loving the Lord. Yahweh, all capital Lord, the covenant name. I will be your God, you will be my people. Who, who sent me? I am. Tell him I am sent you. It's that personal God. In the Bible, 4,897 times we read the word my. In Psalm 18, the word, the possessive pronoun my shows up 39 times. And in verse 2, 8 times my. Does anybody remember our uh, series in Galatians? Galatians 2, taking justification by faith personally. Remember? Where Paul says about Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. David is speaking in that personal awareness when he goes, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold. He uses rock twice. The first one connotates strength and stability. The, the next time, more rock being a hiding place, a place of refuge. Did you notice all the ands? It's almost as if David is saying, God is this, but he is so much more. I'm going to pile word after word after word to describe this great God who I love, the Lord. Notice now in verse 3, there is a great salvation in response to David's call. David doesn't just theoretically know. He has personally and powerfully experienced the work of of God's salvation in his life. Verse 3 again, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from who? My enemies. My Lord saves me from my enemies. A great love for God and that God is a great personal God and He provides a great salvation. Of course, Psalm 18 points us ahead to Jesus, who we've seen already as the psalm singer. We read in Hebrews 5-7, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. David is foreshadowing the greater son of David to come. Now, why such a great love for a great God? Well, as we've already seen in general in verse 3, 
God has saved David from his enemies. Now in between the introductory and concluding bookends of praise, there are many words devoted to a description of this great salvation, this great deliverance, this great rescue. Um, It's almost as if right now someone has asked David, David, tell me about God's rescue. Tell me about your salvation at the hand of the Lord. And David is happy to give a testimony. So we look now at a great rescue to recall. Verses 4 through 45, the body, the majority of this psalm. In verses 4 through 19, we see the Lord rescued in general. The Lord rescued. Notice um, that rescue is needed. David is a man on the run from Saul, the first king who initially loved David, but then became jealous of David and chased him and sought his death. He was even chased by his own son Absalom, and he had foreign enemies to deal with. Rescue is needed. We see in verse 4 to 6, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The stairs of death confronted me. Here David goes ahead and says it right off the bat. The primary ultimate danger is death. And he provides us two powerful images. Being tied up and being drowned. It's it's to help us think evocatively as, as death as being a cord that entangles us and waters, a torrent of waters that drown us. And David is saying, that's what my situation was. And look at verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. I called, I cried, he heard, my cry reached. When he's anxious and under attack, And we don't see this in the English translation, but we do see it in the original Hebrew. It is a continual calling, a continual crying out. God continually uh, hearing. God continually uh, responding to the cry that reaches Him. Yes, we are rescued once through faith in Christ, but yet... Do we not continue to cry out to the Lord who hears? This rescue is needed. This rescue is powerful. Verses 7 through 15 are poetic language of great power in coming, of God in coming to rescue. It's a theophany, it's God appearing, God being made manifest, and this imagery. David is most likely taking it from Israel's history, from the song of Moses, of The departure from Egypt, the going through the Red Sea and and God appearing at Mount Sinai. David is mining the history of God's people, the history of God's rescue. And he's using this kind of powerful images of God controlling nature. God powerfully working to hear. But this rescue is not just powerful as we see in verses 7 through 15. It is also personal in verses 6 
16 through 19. Again, pick up with me in 16. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. It's personal. God doesn't display His power in general, but in particular and upon particular people. Here, David. And beginning in verse 20, we see that the Lord doesn't just rescue, He he rewards. What? Look at this language. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. Well, wait a minute. This is toward the end of David's life. He's looking back at his... Uh, deliverance at the hand from the hand of Saul, from Absalom, from foreign enemies. What? David is claiming sinlessness. He's claiming blameless. Well, just as we saw in Psalm 17, David is not claiming absolute sinlessness. He's not claiming uh, blamelessness, but he's, he's denying apostasy. He's saying where Saul departed, Saul the first great humanist, doing it his way, not the Lord's way. David says, I haven't departed and I'm being treated unjustly and the Lord is treating me justly. I have kept fast to the Lord. Here his claim is limited to a specific situation of a danger he faced from Saul. And of course, this is just providing the background for the only one who was blameless, the only one who was righteous. Jesus Christ, again, we read in Hebrews 5, 7 that He cried and He was heard. He was rescued from death. Why? Because of His reverence. Because of His righteousness. Because of His perfection. And Christians, by faith in Christ, have the righteousness of Christ. As we saw over and over in Galatians. So the Lord rewarded, but the Lord also equips. And we see this in verses 25 through 42. Who does God equip? We see it in the language of verses 25 through 27. The merciful, the blameless, the purified, the humble. Who does God look upon? Not the high and mighty, not the haughty. He looks at one who what? Is lowly in spirit, who trembles at His word, who is contrite in heart. That's who the Lord equips. And how does God equip? Look at verses 28 through 36. He, he uses this image of lightness and darkness. And then he goes into his word. His word is perfect. His word is true. God equips his people through his word. And then in verses 37 through 42, we see what happens when God equips. What happens? Well, we work out what God works in. God strengthens David. He acts with might and valor. God strengthens David with confidence. David doesn't run and flee. He waits on the Lord. He perseveres. He trusts. God strengthens David to enable him to do what he had to do. And what is the end of that ultimately here in this? It's victory. It's victory. And as this psalm points forward to the righteous one, to the perfect one, what do we read in Colossians 2 about Jesus? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 
In Hebrews 2.15 we read that through death, He, that is Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so the language here over and over again is God equipping David with what he needs to do what God has asked of him. It's it's Paul telling the believers to work out that which God has worked in you. God equips, but His people then use that equipment and live it out. But the Lord not only rescues, the Lord not only rewards, but not only equips, but we see in verses 43 through 45 that He exalts. He exalts. You delivered me with strife, with, from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. We see in these verses what is directly stated a little bit later in verse 48. Yes, you exalted me. It's true for David and it's even more true for Jesus Christ. Indeed, right? Philippians chapter 2, in response to Jesus' obedience to death, even death on a cross, what does God the Father do? God has highly exalted Him. Look at the language of 43. Again, made me the head of the nations. Is that really David? Well, in a way, yes, but it's more of Jesus Christ. Think about the Great Commission after His resurrection. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. My friends, that is exaltation. And you can even read into this that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before we move on, I want us to come back to verse 19. Look with me at verse 19. He brought me out into a broad place, okay, to the promised land, to salvation, to rescue. He rescued me because He delighted in me. My friends, it is so easy for us in our thinking to say, you know what? God rescued me. God did this for me because I did this. I did that. David knows his heart. And David knows the reality of what we see earlier in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. Why does the Lord love His people? He loves His people because He loves them. It is because the Lord loves you. That's why He rescues you. Because He loves you. David has seen that as the Lord has delighted. Notice that with this delight, we saw that God moves heaven and earth to rescue. I want you all to think about that for a moment. 
The Lord delighting in those who trust in His Son, Jesus. The Lord doing whatever it takes to provide you with salvation. Moving, as these words give us a a visual picture, moving and heaven and earth to effect a powerful salvation. Now, although this rescue and deliverance is intensely personal, David doesn't keep it to himself. When it comes to God's great work of salvation, he is not silent. Rather, he tells others. You've got it recorded in 2 Samuel 22. You've got it recorded here in Psalm 18. David proclaims the good news of a great rescue. These last five verses are a doxology, a song of praise, but they are can be seen as, as a great gospel to proclaim. Join with me as I read these last five verses again. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Gospel. How can we say gospel? Well, remember, the New Testament took over a a Greek word that was really news of a great military victory. This victory would be announced using the word gospel, and Christianity rightly took that word and poured into it the reality of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what Paul said was of first importance. And here you see in these last verses a living God. A living God who purposes to preserve David and his line. Why? So that there would be a redeemer for the world. We see that in the covenant God makes with David and his descendants. It's a living God who saves. A living God who saves through repentance and faith. What does it take to call upon the Lord? What does it take to call upon the Lord? It takes repentance and faith. Two things that God Himself gives those mysteriously who humble themselves before Him. What does it take to call out repentance and faith? In the Gospel the good news of salvation in Christ in the direst of circumstances. Our our, um, condemnation, our deserved condemnation and an eternity in hell that awaits. In the gospel, they have already been emptied of their threat and power through the person and work of Jesus. A living God who saves and notice this message of salvation. Look, Verse 49, for this I will praise you, O Lord, where? In my bedroom, in my office, in my church, beyond that, to the nations, to Central Asia where Jason has been laboring these past two 
years. To the ends of the earth, this message goes out. What is David doing? He's worshiping. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings. Most of us have heard the quote by John Piper saying this, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. My friends, David is worshiping the Lord for this great salvation. And he wants others to know about it as well. Well, as we conclude, as we conclude our brief look at a great God to love, a great rescue to recall, and a great gospel to proclaim. I think there are a few questions we need to ask ourselves, and not just ask ourselves, but answer. At the beginning, David refers to God the Lord as my strength. Several times, but more particular in, toward the end in verse 46, Exalted be the God of my salvation. David is saying, without hesitation, God is my strength and God is my salvation. So let me ask you this. Uh, who or what is your strength? I mean, all of us, I think, recognize we're weak. Where do we turn when we're weak? What's our source of strength? Is it ourselves? It is something that the world can provide, or is it the living and true God? For David, he's saying it's the living and true God. And what is your salvation? Who or what are you trusting in to rescue you? As we say on our postcard, to be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? Another way to say that is uh, to be human is to need rescue, to need deliverance to need saving. Who or what are you trusting in to rescue you, to deliver you, to save you? Early on in the psalm, David says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. Have you called upon the Lord? Have you called upon the Lord for the big rescue? Are you calling him? Are you calling on him now for the subsequent rescues? And if you're not doing that, if you not, if you haven't done that, why not? And why not now? Um, I. I'm having trouble these days. I remember to do something and then I completely forget to do it, right? And the last three days I've told myself there is a mouse in my study in the basement and I need to set out the mouse trap. I have thought about that, immediately forgotten it, thought about it, immediately forgotten about it, thought about it. I go to my microwave and open up and there's a cup of coffee there and I'm like, why is it there? 
I'd forgotten that I'd put it there. My friends, all this is to say, if not now, when? Today is the day of salvation. Today, now. Because through Jesus, the promised Son of David, God saves the humble. God saves those who cry out to Him and call upon Him. God's love for us in Christ, His rescue of us is powerful and it is as personal as it is powerful. My friends, rest and rely on the strength and the salvation that God the Father provides us through Jesus the Son. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this declaration in no uncertain terms that for King David, the Lord was His strength and His salvation. And He loved you. And Father, we know from, the, from Your Word, especially the Gospel of John, about Jesus' relationship with His Father and His love for His Father and how He trusted His Father. He relied upon His Father. Oh Lord, help us to rest and rely on Jesus. Help us to truly embrace Him as our strength and as our salvation. And Father, for those of us who have experienced this great rescue, would You give us boldness and courage and patience to tell others where salvation alone is found. Oh Father, hasten the day when everyone will bow the knee to King Jesus. For we pray in His name. Amen.